PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to PTJ's The Bottom Line for January 2009. I'm Donovan Stutel, along with Dave Corvoisier. Bottom Lines translate the findings of selected research articles for clinical practice. Bottom Lines are not intended to substitute for a critical reading of the original articles. The Bottom Lines for the January 2009 issue of PTJ were written by Dr. Eric Robertson, Assistant Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, Georgia. Our first bottom line summarizes Motor Control Exercise for Persistent Nonspecific Low Back Pain, a Systematic Review by Luciana Macedo, Dr. Christopher Marr, Dr. Jane Latimer, and Dr. James McCauley. What problems did the researchers set out to study, and why? The authors of the study sought to investigate the current literature examining the effectiveness of motor control exercises on pain, disability, and quality of life at short-term, intermediate, and long-term follow-up periods for patients with persistent nonspecific low back pain. Despite widespread use clinically, the effectiveness of motor control exercises for persistent low back pain remains unclear. Previous systematic reviews exhibited weaknesses in their method of analysis, limiting the ability to draw conclusions about this topic. Who participated in this study? The researchers performed an extensive literature search that ultimately resulted in the inclusion of 14 randomized or quasi-randomized clinical trials investigating the use of motor control exercises for the management of patients with persistent low back pain. The authors defined persistent low back pain as subacute, chronic, or recurrent low back pain lasting longer than six weeks. What new information does this study offer? The results of this analysis provide evidence that motor control exercises alone or in conjunction with other interventions are effective in reducing pain and disability for patients with persistent nonspecific low back pain. Motor control exercises were not found to be superior to manual therapy, other forms of exercise, or lumbar surgery. How did the researchers go about this study? The 14 studies were grouped into four treatment contrasts. One, motor control versus minimal intervention. Two, motor control versus manual therapy. Three, motor control versus other forms of exercise. And four, motor control versus lumbar fusion surgery. Data were pooled whenever possible, and analysis was performed according to the Cochrane Group guidelines for systematic reviews. How might these results be applied to physical therapist practice? Physical therapists often use motor control exercises in the management of patients with persistent nonspecific low back pain. This study provides evidence to support this intervention, and physical therapists can feel confident that this intervention will offer a benefit to their patients. What are the limitations of this study, and what further research is needed? There was wide variation among trials included in this study due in part to the lack of a standard definition of motor control exercises among clinicians. It is possible that studies were not included in the analysis that might have altered the conclusions. Future research is needed to determine the optimal method to administer motor control exercises. 
Additional research is also needed to better determine whether there is a subgroup of patients with decreased motor control who might experience greater benefit from this form of exercise than the general population of patients with persistent low back pain. Our next bottom line summarizes non-surgical management of posterior tibial tendon dysfunction with orthoses and resistive exercise, a randomized controlled trial. By Dr. Cornelia Kulig, Dr. Stephen Reichel, Dr. Amy Pomrantz, Dr. Judith Burnfield, Dr. Susan Meisrequejo, Dr. David Thordarson, and Dr. Ronald Smith. What problems did the researchers set out to study and why? Posterior tibial tendon dysfunction is a leading cause of acquired flat foot deformity in the adult population. Evidence has suggested that strengthening programs that target the tibialis posterior musculotendinous complex can affect the progression of this disorder. However, the optimal method to strengthen this complex has not been specified. These investigators wanted to compare the effects of an eccentric exercise program with the effects of a concentric exercise program and arch supports on pain and function. Who participated in this study? 36 adults with stage 1 or stage 2 posterior tibialis tendon dysfunction, based on criteria set forth by Johnson and Strom, participated in the study. What new information does this study offer? Functional mobility measured with the foot function index improved across all groups. The orthoses and eccentric exercise group demonstrated the most improvements in pain in each subcategory of the foot function index, and the orthoses-only group experienced the least amount of improvement. How did the researchers go about this study? Subjects were randomized to one of three groups, a group that received orthoses-only, a group that received orthoses and concentric resistance exercise, and a group that received orthoses and eccentric resistance exercise. All participants were instructed in stretching exercises. Resistance training was performed as a home exercise program on a specialized device that was designed to selectively load the tibialis posterior tendon in either a concentric or eccentric manner. During the 10 weeks of the exercise program, a research investigator or physical therapist met with subjects once a week for 30 minutes. Baseline and post-intervention measures were taken for function, using the foot function index, ambulation, using the five-minute walk test, and pain, using the visual analog scale. How might the results of this study apply to physical therapist practice? Although orthoses and stretching can improve pain and function, the addition of either concentric-focused or eccentric-focused strength training might further improve outcomes for patients with posterior tibial tendon dysfunction. What are the limitations of the study and what further research is needed? The randomization process did not result in similar groups with significant differences noted across all three groups prior to intervention. Although the authors attempted to account for this statistically, the lack of similar groups could have an effect on the differences seen after intervention. In addition, adherence across all participants averaged 68%, which could have limited some subjects' ability to recognize changes due to the intervention. Future research is needed to examine the effect of different modes of exercise on tendon remodeling, pain, and function.
Our next bottom line summarizes, does continuing education improve physical therapists' effectiveness in treating neck pain? A randomized clinical trial by Dr. Joshua Cleland, Dr. Julie Fritz, Dr. Gerard Brennan, and Dr. Jake Magel. What problems did the researchers set out to study, and why? Physical therapists often attend continuing education courses, but traditional continuing education programs might not improve clinical outcomes for patients with neck pain. These researchers wanted to examine whether an enhanced continuing education program, which included small group teaching and an educational outreach visit, in addition to a traditional two-day course, improved clinical outcomes more than the traditional two-day course alone. Who participated in this study? The study group consisted of 19 physical therapists with an average age of about 39 years and about 12 years' experience. The group ranked their overall confidence in treating patients with neck pain as 2.6 on a 5-point Likert scale, ranging from not confident, which was a ranking of 0, to very confident, which was a ranking of 5. Two therapists in each group had obtained orthopedic clinical specialization. What new information does this study offer? This study demonstrates the value of supplementing a traditional two-day course with follow-up small group teaching and an educational outreach visit. The physical therapists who attended the enhanced program achieved greater improvements in patient disability, but not in pain. How did the researchers go about the study? Physical therapists working in 11 different clinics from One Health System were invited to attend a two-day continuing education course. The course consisted of lab and lecture instruction of an evidence-based classification approach to the treatment of patients with neck pain. After the course, therapists were randomized to two groups. The experimental group received ongoing education in the form of two one-and-a-half-hour meetings and an outreach visit that enabled each therapist to co-treat a patient with the lead instructor. Clinical data were obtained for patients treated by the study participants for a time period prior to training, 245 patients, and a time period after training, 511 patients. How might these results be applied to physical therapist practice? These findings are consistent with other research that suggests that traditional continuing education formats emphasizing short-term intensive courses do not improve patient outcomes. Physical therapists might achieve improved patient outcomes if they seek out continuing education opportunities that include follow-up small group teaching and educational outreach visits. What are the limitations of this study? And what further research is needed? Possible contamination bias existed where therapists in different groups but working at the same clinic might have communicated with each other. This bias means that the study potentially underestimates the effect of the enhanced continuing education program. More research is needed to determine the cost-effectiveness of this approach and to investigate whether it can be adapted for other health problems that physical therapists manage. Our last bottom line summarizes effects of early progressive eccentric exercise on muscle size and function after anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction, a one-year follow-up study of a randomized clinical trial by Dr. J. Perry Gerber, Dr. Robin Marcus, Dr. Leland Dibble, Dr. Patrick Grice, Dr. Robert Burks, and Dr. Paul Listeo. What problems did the researchers set out to study and why? A previous study reported the effects of an early, progressive, eccentric exercise program for anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction during the first 15 weeks following surgery. 
Typical ACL reconstruction rehabilitation programs often exceed one year in duration, so a need exists to examine the effects of the protocol at the one-year mark. Who participated in this study? The study sample was made up of the same subjects as the initial reported study, 40 adults who underwent an ACL reconstruction with either a semitetanosis gracilis tendon autograft or a bone patellar tendon bone autograft. What new information does this study offer? A 12-week focused eccentric resistance training program implemented three weeks after ACL reconstruction increased quadriceps femoris and gluteus maximus muscle volume, quadriceps femoris muscle strength and function compared with a standard rehabilitation program. How did the researchers go about this study? Subjects were randomized into two groups, a standard rehabilitation group or a progressive-focused eccentric training group. Initially, both groups performed Phase 1 exercises. At three weeks after surgery, the eccentric training group began a 12-week progressive negative work program using two eccentric exercise ergometers. Following the 15 weeks of rehabilitation, both groups were instructed in a traditional home exercise program of progressive resistance exercise. The researchers examined quadriceps femoris and gluteus maximus muscle volume using magnetic resonance imaging, quadriceps femoris and hamstring muscle strength using an isokinetic dynamometer, single leg hopping distance, and knee laxity using the KT-1000 arthrometer device. Subjects also completed several functional outcome measures. How might the results of this study apply to physical therapist practice? Although the optimal rehabilitation program following ACL reconstruction is not yet clearly delineated, inclusion of a progressive eccentric resistance program early in rehabilitation following ACL reconstruction might improve outcomes at one year following surgery. What are the limitations of the study and what further research is needed? The differences between groups observed at one year cannot be attributed solely to the eccentric training program due to several factors. Follow-up rate was 80% over the course of the trial. There was no control group. And a detailed description of the actual home program performed following rehabilitation was lacking. Further research is warranted to best determine exercise protocols that normalize the hip-knee relationship, as well as to examine differences in muscle volume observed with different ACL graft types. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.